As we, uh, as we continue forward, we're, we're going to be back in the book of John here. And it's an interesting setup. Jesus has just been baptizing, Brent told us last week, and there's some controversy that's come up. The Pharisees are arguing against John the Baptist, saying, hey, why, why are you doing this baptizing thing? This is a little annoying. We don't need to be cleaned, we don't need to be cleaned up. We're, we're good, godly people. And we were challenged that we need to humble ourselves or be humbled. And in this sense, Jesus is also in the same location. That controversy is beginning to roll over as his disciples are baptizing. He's in the Jordan area. If you'll see here at the picture behind me, this map. What we have here is, is the Jordan River that runs right down the center here. And Jesus is somewhere out here in this area and he's baptizing. Now, he's getting into this controversy with the Pharisees. Situations are rising. Tensions are growing. And so for some reason, he determines it's time to go back up to Galilee. And so they would have naturally probably just gone straight up the path. That is, it's got plenty of water. It journeys you straight up. And it's a traditional path because you don't want to go through Samaria. In fact, Samaria was a location of, um, of a group of people who held a very similar but slightly different view of, of, of Judaism. In fact, Samaritans were called half-breeds. They were hated by the Jews. And so you can imagine as Jesus is packing up and his disciples are going, okay, let's go. They, the disciples start walking by the river and Jesus is like, we're not going that way. What, what, what are you talking about we're not going that way? Well, we're going we're gonna to head this way. That goes to Samaria. Jesus, you know where that goes. Those Samaritans, they got cooties. You can't go in there. You know, in essence, that's what they're saying. You're unclean if you get near them. If you touch them, you got to go wash. You can't eat the food that they provide. This is a really bad idea. You know what people are going to think about us? And you can imagine that Jesus is walking along this journey, and he probably feels a lot like a dad with a lot of kids because they're sitting there going, I don't want to go through Samaria. This is no fun. They're not going to like us. But what if they don't talk bad about us? They're going to try to offer us food. We don't want to do this. Did you know they only worship Moses and that's it? They don't even believe in the rest of the just they set up a temple on mount gerizim can you believe that this is ridiculous if we walk through there we're endorsing them come on jesus turn around i love this line because it's just right here in chapter four it says and jacob's well was here at this place in sychar so jesus wearied from his journey i wonder why he was wearied you know, this isn't a difficult walk. People have gone this route, and it's very likely Jesus is just worn out. This is a controversial situation. This is intense. These disciples probably were not going willingly into these locations. And so they come to this area. And if you want to check out this story, you can go there to John chapter 4, because it gets a little bit more intense, actually, emotionally, as we begin. And, but I'll, I'll read it quickly while you're turning there. John chapter 4, we're going to go through up to verse 26 today page 888 in the Bibles in the seats, and so you can join us. It says, now Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, and near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So it's the heat of the day, and he sits down by this well. And a woman comes out of the distance. You can imagine, this is not the, this is not the most um, flush place with, with uh, flora and fauna. There's 
dirt desert all over the place. You got to go a distance from the town to get to this well. It's not the town well, it's the well outside of town. And she's found herself to this well. And so she's approaching Jesus, engages her. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Her disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And a Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This is a very interesting engagement. We're just reading it. We don't really realize the tension that's going on in the text. I mean, imagine if instead this was written in this manner. And Jesus came to Hollywood Boulevard. It was 2 a.m. at night. And he approached a woman standing on the corner and said to her, Hey, give me a dollar. All of us would be like, Why is Jesus at Sunset Boulevard at 2 a.m. in the night? That's uncomfortable. Jesus shouldn't be there. That's a bad idea. That's probably not good. And that's exactly what the ancient world was feeling. This is not a good place for Jesus to be alone without his accountability partners, if you know what I'm saying. Because traditionally, a well is where you went to pick up your wife or a woman. And here Jesus is, is hanging at a well, all alone. And lo and behold, a woman comes walking up. And Jesus, who traditionally, and according to all the ethics and norms of his time period, should have kept his mouth shut, goes, I'm going to put that aside for a second. I need to talk to you. Which is tantamount and at least to the woman's perspective in this, to flirting. Now, I don't believe Jesus is flirting. Trust me. Jesus is not engaging in flirting to convert. That's, he does not endorse in the Bible, okay? But he is willing to set aside this stuff for the sake of reaching this woman. And so he engages her. He says, give me a drink. And she's like, what? This is ridiculous. You're Jewish. You're a man. Why do you want a drink from me? And so and he goes on, if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would, be, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And we're like, ooh, living water. It's so spiritual. No, it just means moving water. In the uh, ancient world, stagnant water that sat in ponds or in pools or in lakes was considered not as good. It wasn't as pure as water moving in a river or in a stream or at the, in an aquifer under in a well. That water moved, and so it was living. It'd be, in essence, us, Jesus walking up to us, us saying, hey, let me give you some filtered water. Because we all know drinking out of the tap is gross today. I grew up drinking out of the tap water at Corona. Anybody else do that? Yeah, that's why we got good, strong teeth, because there was enough calcium in there to cause your faucet to turn into a rock. And it was like amazing stuff. But the reality is that today, most people think of drinking from your faucet as a little bit gross. And last night, my son literally brushed his teeth, turned on his faucet, and went, <laughs> and drank from it. And his cousin goes, ew, because we drink bottled water and britted water and filtered water, and that's just the same feeling. And Jesus is going, hey, I got some filtered water for you. You want some good, pure water? And she's going, I don't see where you're getting this water from. You don't have a filter. You don't have a bag to pull this up from. Where are you getting this? You have nothing to draw the water with, and the well is deep. Where are you getting this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And the implied answer is, no, you're not. This is actually snarky. She's saying, you're not greater than our father Jacob. He gave us us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. 
Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, probably pointing at the well, but whatever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life, to the good life. And the woman said, sir, give me this water so I don't have to, so I will not be thirsty and, and to come here to draw water. And there's debates. Does she understand? I think she does. I think she heard the words, I'll give this to you and you'll have eternal life. And she's going, uh, yeah, I want that. So I can be made right. So things can be set right. I want that. Because Jesus has now taken it away from the depth of the well to a deeper meaning into the spiritual realm. And when he talks about thirst, he's not talking about just any form of thirst. He's talking about the human thirst that exists in all of us. You came to church today and you may have been thirsty for water. And if you're thirsty at all, I could talk about faucets dripping and waterfalls and and you're just going to get more thirsty. But the reality is that we came with a different kind of thirst. Ever since Adam and Eve fell in sin, sin has entered into human beings in such a manner that it has stolen from you three very, very, very important aspects. The first one is value. Ladies, many of you understand the depth of how far our value has been stolen. Um, men, we get this too, but in different ways because we are told and we are very clear that your value today is either equated on your beauty, on your looks, on your ability, on your ability to make a paycheck, on how skilled you are. We put all these categories of value together and if you lose those categories, you're not as valuable as somebody else. In fact, we'll value human life and not let some people get to start it if we don't value it high enough. Or we'll just end it early if we don't value it high enough. And the reality is we're fighting as a culture for what it means to be human beings and to be valuable. We struggle with this concept and we're thirsty to know, am I valuable? Some of you may walk through your life with consistent tapes rolling through your mind about how you look and who you are and what you've done. And that value level is just rolling around some of us, it's not value, it's identity. When you were young, you had big dreams about who you would be and what you would do and the kind of person that you are. And now you're, you're, some of you are at that age and you're in that 20s and the world tells you, now go find yourself. Isn't that a funny statement? When did you lose yourself? The self needs to be discovered? Uh-huh. Because of sinfulness in our lives, we lose track of who we and what we really are. And we have this disconnection to our identity so that all kinds of things now become our identity. All kinds of ways that we live become our identity. Some of you have gone so far beyond examining who you are anymore. Life just happened to you and you are who you are. You're a bad person, you tell yourself. You're an alcoholic. You're just, you name it. And identity becomes a form of all kinds of things and we'll put it on people, but we're longing for it. We thirst to know who we are. We thirst to know what we're worth. And we thirst to know if it means anything. We're longing for meaning. We're longing for purpose. There's this sense that I worked all my life, but did it come to amount to anything? Has it really brought any change of any value? Is it really good? What did I do? I've lost it all. Now I don't have anything. Is there any purpose? 
I'm young and I'm already saddled with this debt. How am I supposed to live for my purpose if I got to pay off a debt? I mean, this is the world we live in. And we come thirsty. And some go to the bars to drink away their thirst. And I'm glad you come to church because Jesus is offering the drink that satisfies all thirsts. And I think this woman heard rightly and she said, give me that so I don't have to keep coming here at this time in this way. Because women didn't come to the wells at noon in the heat of the day. They came to the wells in the morning as groups talking their talks and enjoying together, getting their water, helping each other out, and going back before the heat heated up. She was alone because she was known about something. And so Jesus says, you want that water? Here, I'll give it to you. And so he leans in and he says, go call your husband and come here. I believe this is the first step in him giving her the living water. He says, go get your husband, go find your husband, and then come back. Because he's going to point something out to her. He's going to point her thirst out. And she says to him, you know what? Um, I don't have a husband. In other words, you're talking to me. We're at a well. You tell me to go get my husband. I'm going to tell you, I'm single. That's, you could read it that way in the text. I'm available is how you would read that. And Jesus kind of goes, that's nice. Let me tell you the truth here. Um, you, have, you tell me the truth that you have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you have is not your husband. Ouch. Leans over and says, well, you are, lady. I know who you are. You're a serial fornicator. Whether she's been married five times or not is not necessarily in the text. It could be read that way, that she's been divorced five times, which uh, Jewish law said you get three. She's a Samaritan. We don't know what that was like. But whatever's gone on, she's so shamed. We do know the person she's with at this moment is not her husband. The emphasis on, on the text is on the your. It's somebody's husband, but it ain't yours. She's in committing adultery, and Jesus isn't tolerant and doesn't tiptoe around the bushes and doesn't make sure everybody feels good. He just goes, there, that's the problem. Sin. And she doesn't get to go, I'm so offended. You'd call me a sinner. You're not like Jesus who loves everybody. You know, this is Jesus talking. And he points directly at the sin. Immediately. And she doesn't repent. She does exactly what most of us as human beings do. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. You think you're a smart guy. You think you know me? You think you got it all figured out? Well, answer me this, dude. We worship with hymns. You guys worship with contemporary music. Come on. Your music is way too loud. It's supposed to be this decibel. Don't you understand? She pulls out the worship wars. I'm just a boom. In the church for the 70s, in the 70s, it's called the worship wars. Churches started exploding and blowing up over what kind of music we were going to sing. And here she brings up the original worship wars. You see, the Samaritans believed you should worship over there on this temple on Mount Gerizim. They could have seen the pile of rubble that it was from where they were standing. The Jews believed, no, you worship in Jerusalem and at the temple in Jerusalem. That's where you worship. And so she goes, tell me this smart guy, where are you supposed to worship? And here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus doesn't go like, well, we're not talking about that right now. He gets into worship and he focuses on worship and he stays there. And so we're going to do that too. We'll leave the woman aside 
We'll let, uh, we'll let Stephen take care of that next week. But what we're going to look at now is we're going to look at worship. If Jesus is willing to go there, we're going to go there. And we're going to learn a lot about worship this morning in the context of this woman who's extremely thirsty for something greater. So let's take a look at this because it starts very interestingly. She says, hey, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. It's pointing at Mount Gerizim. But you say in Jerusalem, this is the place that people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in the mountain in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So suddenly Jesus gets in this very long discourse about what is worship. Now, I want to take a note real quick here. Because when I say the word worship, we, we assume, hey, we just finished worship. You know, we're in the sermon. Worship is the music you do for 15 minutes before the sermon and the little bit you do at the end or whatever church you're in, however you organize that. Worship is the music portion of the day. And, you know, you know, people tell you, do you worship at home? You know, pull out your guitar and sing worship songs at home. Or do you put in a CD and worship in your car? As if that's what worship is. And I'm here to, we're going to just throw all that out. Let's just start with the reality that in, when Jesus mentions worship and the woman mentions worship, they're not talking about music. They are talking about barbecues. What? They're talking about sacrifices. Sacrifice always worked in which you brought an animal, whether it was for to repent of your sins and have the blood of that animal cover your sins, or you were thankful to God for something, you were bringing it to God so that he would be, you would celebrate. In both cases, they would slaughter the animal, pray over the animal, slaughter the animal, pour the blood out, and then put the, put the animal up on a, uh, the dead animal and his carcass up on a pit that was an altar that was burning with fire and cook it. In some cases, it was completely burnt up. In other cases, it was some of the, a portion was brought back and you ate it in front of God at the temple. This is worship. Any guys willing to get that back? That's kind of cool, you know? It's like, ah, barbecue is worship. That's awesome. No, but the, the reality is that all worship in this setting, Old Testament or new, was based was on gratitude. It was about gratitude. Any heart of worship is a heart of thanks. Any heart of worship is a heart of praise to God. When you came to bring your sacrifice, it was intended to lead you to gratitude because God gave you a way to deal with your sin. Here's the beautiful thing for us. We don't bring animals to, to church except your pets nowadays, once in a while, in purses and things. But, the, but in this case, you brought your animal to sacrifice it. We don't do that anymore because Jesus is our sacrifice. He bore our sin for us. His blood covered our sins. So we don't come to church bringing sacrifices. We come having already had a sacrifice made for us. That means when you come to church, guys, and you've sinned during the week, and we all have, whether you feel guilty for it or not, we all did. You don't have to walk in here and say, I can't sing, and I can't pray. I need to, I need to beat myself up one Sunday at least, and then I can do it next week if I don't sin next week. We work in this works penance thing, and that's not what God's doing. What God says is, you come here knowing I've already paid for it. You come in Christ's righteousness, His covering, not yours. 
And when you walk in this room, sure, tell God, I'm so sorry for the things that I've done. And he says, good, I already knew what you did. I already covered it in Christ. Get up, let's praise, let's sing. Because he's given you that much. He's covered your sins. We come out of gratitude, out of thankfulness, out of celebration that we don't have to kill anything. We don't have to beat anybody up. We got the beautiful opportunity just to give our hearts to God out of gratitude. You see, the basis of worship is always fueled by grace and forgiveness. It's always fueled. The more you understand your sin is not so you beat yourself up. I reference that not so you walk away from here going, gosh, Greg's really down on humanity. They stink. We're a, we're a whole bunch of sinners. This is... No, it's because when you understand that, when you begin with your thirst, you see how much he's supplied to you. When you see how much he's supplied to you, it erupts in thankfulness. If you don't understand your sin, you can't see how much greater of an ocean is his grace. And when you don't see how great of an ocean his grace is, our thanks is going to be very, very small. Worship is always fueled with gratitude. Even in the Old Testament, it was always fueled by grace and forgiveness. And so I want you to see that as Jesus gets into this. Neither of them are talking about music. They're talking about these attitudes of bringing for forgiveness or thanksgiving and where you did that. And so it starts off this way. I perceive you're a prophet. Our father sacrificed on this mountain. You say Jerusalem is the place people ought to sacrifice. And he says, women, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you, will you have to sacrifice for the father. It's all done. There's an hour coming where he bears himself as a sacrifice, but even more, something else occurs. And Jesus is going to give us two ways to grow in our worship. First of all, he says, the hour is coming, verse 23, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He gives us these two ways, spirit and in truth. Trust me, how many of you guys have heard the interpretation that spirit means, guys, you need to be fervent and raise your hands and get on your knees and shout to Jesus. <laughs> Anybody heard that one? That's what spirit is, man. You got spirit. We got spirit. Yeah, yeah. That's what I always think of is the, is the corona highs. We got spirit. But anyway, no, that's not what it means. Spirit is not fervency in this text. Note what it says. Jesus is talking about where should we worship. Is it this temple or that temple? He says, no. God is spirit. And you shall worship him in spirit and in truth. The idea of worship is about living out worship every day and everywhere, not just in a location. Worship's not about location. You don't worship God only on Sunday morning at a Sunday service or, on a, or at a small group or just singing songs in a car. That is not your worship. It is part, but it is not only your worship. And it's important to note because worship is more than this. It's in spirit. And Psalm 139, 7 through 8 kind of defines this for us. It says, where shall we go from your spirit speaking to God? Or shall I flee from your presence? There's another term. Spirit and presence are linked. In fact, when we call the spirit of God, we say it's his presence. If I ascend into heaven, if I get up there into the stars, the edge of the universe, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, if I dig into the ground and put myself in the deepest cave I can find, you're there. In other words, God's everywhere. 
There is nowhere that you can go that God isn't present. The term is omnipresent. It means that God is fully in every location, not just in certain locations. And so he says, it's not about where you worship. It's about realizing that God is spirit. He is everywhere. And so everywhere at everything you ought and will worship because the sacrifice has been paid. The location is no longer necessary. The hour has come. The sacrifice is made. Now everything that you can do is worship, save, sin. And here's the beautiful thing. That means God is with you at your workplace. He is there to be worshipped at your workplace. God is with you in your car. And He's there to be worshipped in your car. God is there in your home, watching how you and your spouse interact, watching how you and your kids interact. And God is there to be worshipped in those relationships. God is there in your bedroom. God is there watching TV with you. Gulp. God is there watching what your data streaming and downloading on your phone. There's nothing that God doesn't know and nowhere that God isn't so that He is everywhere assuming all things and you and I are always near him. In fact, Paul gets so into this, he will actually say there are no temples. Like Mormons love to build temples and Jesus like, it's not about location. You and I are the temple of God. You are the temple of God, he says. Your body is the temple. You are the locus of worship of God. Made in his image and the, and the presence of God dwells in you so you are the temple of God now. Here, and it culminates then in this, in this radical thought. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do what? Do all. Whatever you do, all. Eat, drink, work, sleep, jump, wave your hand. That's the weirdest thing that happened to me. I was on my way to a Bible study about to teach something very similar. In fact, the, the, the conclusion that I gathered from this, from this conversation was that there is nothing secular or sacred. Okay, my job is not necessarily sacred. I'm a Christian. Yes, my job deals with sacred things. But your job is as sacred as Christians because you are sacred. All that we do pertains to worship. All work pertains to worship. And so I'm driving to this place to do a Bible study and teach it, and it was my first time ever teaching. I get overwhelmed by this. I'm in my car, and suddenly I'm just like blown away by this. I'm like, whoa. And I wasn't tripping. It was just reality that God was holding my hand together, that my nerves were working because he designed them to. The blood was pumping to him. Every cell cohered. Each one was appropriate to where it was. Every aspect of what was going on, I didn't need a remote control. The physics were keeping the car on the ground, moving forward. The friction was keeping the tires attached. All of the combustion was occurring. Everything was happening because God's word held it together according to Hebrews. And I'm going, oh my God. It's incredible. Mind-blowing. Worship with a wave of a hand. Got so overwhelmed, I was like, this is awesome. And I wanted to remember that God was with me at work and stuff. So one day I sat down at my computer terminal, and this is before I was married and when I was younger, and I, I took this thing and I printed it out and it said, Remember who your boss is. Because I've been reading Colossians, I want to remember my boss is God, and I want to do my best for God. And I taped it up on my computer, my computer monitor. My boss walks by like five minutes later and goes, Why do you need to remember who your boss is? And it's like I'm like, Well, sir, you're not my boss, actually. Uh, God's my boss, and you know, he's just like Okay, and so he kind of moves on. 
But it was the reality that I wanted to remember that I could worship at work. How do you worship at work? It's one thing to say, oh, it's an experience. No, it means that you do your work according to how God would call you to do your work in the manner and attitude that God would call you to do your work. Do you go to work and sit there and go, I hate this guy. Well, are you loving your brother? That's not worship. Love your neighbor. Have we thought about consecrating our space? Did you know every job you have you can pray at? You don't have to wait for somebody else to go, let's pray before the meeting. You can pray before the meeting. You can, you can just right where you are, pray before the meeting. Do you know another Christian? You can say, hey, meet, meet me in the hall five minutes before the meeting. We'll pray over our meeting. You can consecrate your workspace. The man in our church, Mitch Leonard, who has consecrated his workspace, works in the, um, in the industry with the, uh, what's, what's that called, uh, motorbikes, um, motocross industry, works on a team, decided, I don't know what to do. I want to worship God at my work. I don't know where to take it. Sat down with a couple of his Christian brothers and said, hey, let's pray before the events. Soon they invited their boss. Then they invited the whole team. Soon the whole team was gathering just to pray over the event. Soon several teams were now coming. At this point, he's like the chaplain of motocross, bringing people to Jesus just from praying with people. You don't think that's worship? He's found that all he had to do is consecrate his time. When you're driving, you want to know how to worship when you're driving? You're going to tell me I have to follow the speed limit. No. <laughs> Did you know there's times to not follow the speed limit? You're actually being a hazard for other people? That the reality is that we should love our brothers and sisters on the freeway. Pastor told me I could speed. I didn't say that either. The reality is that when you're on the freeway, yes, we want to obey the laws of the land, but what we want to do is make sure that we care about our neighbors. Why signal? Because you want to tell people what you're doing. Why let somebody in your lane, even in rush hour traffic? Because we love others. And the worst driver is a selfish driver, not a selfless driver. And Christ has even called us to sacrifice our desire to get somewhere faster for the sake of others. Gospel living and worship occurs in your car, not just from your radio. It comes in how we live, how we treat one another, how we discipline our children, how we husbands lead and serve our wives. That's all worship. Everything is worship except sin. And we need to bring it to God and allow Him to develop that in our lives so that what happens in your week is that it becomes a worship-filled week. You say, great, I don't need to come to church on Sunday anymore. As some people have said, no, that's not true. What's Sunday all about? Actually, it's a, it's a lot like this. Throughout my week, I worship God as best as I can. Yes, I have ups, I have downs, I have times where I'm thinking about it, I have times where I'm not, but I'm doing everything I can to make the most of God and everywhere that I go. And then what happens is it builds up to this place where I love what God has given me and have all this gratitude for this great week. And I gather with other brothers and sisters who've had gratitude and an expression of great worship through a week. And we gather together and we sing about our great God together and we hear the word of God together and we take opportunities together and we pray together. And this is a culmination of our week of worship. And what I hope it does is when you gather from a culmination of a week of worship and purpose is that suddenly you want to sing out, you want to be passionate about God together, and then you leave prepped for another great week of worship. 
so that you came in and you came out here. Then you came and you went out this way and then you went here and you went out this way and then you went here. That's the ideal picture. Now, some of us are doing this and you go through the week and you go, I sinned and I messed up. You know what's awesome about that mess? God already knew you'd go through it. He says, now, I gave you that much more grace. And you come in and you go, how great is God? He covered my sin. He knew already I would do this. He already knew this. How much greater is this God? And it fuels your worship. It's no wonder the church should be known for the place of joy. The second fruit of the Spirit is joy. Not, I'm a morose sinner and I suck. God's awesome. Yeah, I know that, but whatever. No. Worship is a fuel of joy. Thankfulness is a fuel of joy. If your week has gone bad, God is that much more gracious. If your week has gone great, God is that much more gracious. If you've had a horrible week of suffering, God is still standing under you, lifting you and holding you up. He is that gracious. It fueled by grace. It is fueled by thankfulness. And we live this cycle of worship. And the second thing then that begins to occur is that you and I will grow in worship by growing in our relationship with God. See, it's spirit and in what's the other word? Truth. Notice this in verse 22. Jesus is pretty straightforward with the woman. He says, you, speaking in the plural, meaning all you Samaritans, worship what you all don't know. Ouch. I get it, you want to worship God, but you don't know God. We, speaking of the Jewish people, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. He says, look, you guys don't know God, but there's coming a time when all the worshipers will worship God in spirit, not about location, and in truth, about true knowledge. We will know Him, and we will be true worshipers who know God in true knowledge. Notice his word for God. It kind of comes in weird. It's like just out of nowhere. Jesus just says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship who? The Father. That's odd. He's like, look, you're going to worship the Father. He's saying there's already a relationship shift that will occur. You will know the Father and you will be a child of God. Your relationship is set. Here's what's interesting. I grew up and I had a dad. And my dad, on the weekends, would look at me by the time I was old enough, and he'd say, go mow the lawn. And I'd go outside and I'd mow the lawn. We had a crazy lawn. And as I'd mow the lawn, my dad would sit and watch golf or Wimbledon or whatever was going on on television. I hated that. Man, I was like, mm, what do you do around the house? Oh, so you don't need to watch TV. Man, I'm in this teenage gripey mode, right? So I'm just like, Argh. Now, I'm a dad. And I work all week long. I do work all week long. I don't just work today. And I get to this. <laughs> and I get to this place where I come home and I got to mow the lawn. And I'm looking at my son. I'm like, he's 10. Get over here. <laughs> I want to watch Wimbledon. You know, whatever. Now I get my dad. What's funny is all these things I assumed about my father were not true. As a child, I didn't know how to learn about my parents. I had to grow up and ask later, why'd you do this? Why'd you do that? What was this? What was that? And in my relationship with my dad, you, I have learned a bunch of the backstories of why some of the things have occurred the way that they have. 
Just because you became a Christian doesn't mean you know your father. You have to grow in your knowledge. And you grow through a relationship with God. And there are times God will lead you through things that you have no clue why he's doing that. And you may be sitting there as the gripey teenage Christian going, that's not fair, watch a Wimbledon, I'm going through all this suffering. And then one day you're through it and you have a deeper relationship and you just go like, oh, that's what you're shaping in me. And I want to challenge us that maybe some of us have assumed that, hey, we got God figured out. We don't. He's our Father. We need to grow in our knowledge of Him. And in fact, praise God, He gave us information about Him. In John 17, 17, it says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. This is the truth. This teaches us about God. And we can put aside some of our cultural thinking about God. Like, no, God doesn't care about our sins. He's tolerant and He's so nice and He just overlooks all of our sins. It's not true about God. Read, read the Old Testament prophets. God's a Republican. Really? What are our crazy assumptions about God? And the reality is that many of us have cultural assumptions about our Father, but not biblical knowledge. You are blessed to live in a society that not only allows you access to the Bible, it gives it to you in every hotel room in America. Your cell phone, can, if you've got a smartphone, can receive the Bible in multiple languages and versions for free and read it to you. We have no excuse not to read the Bible. We have no excuse to not have a relationship with our Father through the Word of God and to know Him deeply and intimately. And you say, but this book is so old and weird and I don't get it and you're new to the Bible, that's okay. I've got a great place for you to start. It's called YouTube. It's an awesome new thing that's out. I'm just kidding. The reality is there's this channel on YouTube called The Bible Project. Check it out. Write it down, even if you're an old Christian. The Bible Project's been produced in a visual manner to help you understand a summation of every book and many of the themes of the Bible so that you can get what this thing is talking about in a very good visual presentation. I want to encourage you to check it out. The Bible Project's good for your kids. It's good for you. It was good for me. I'm watching it going, I didn't know that. This is awesome. Next. But it enables us to develop and grow that knowledge of this as we get to know God, which deepens our relationship. See, here's the interesting thing. My wife and, my wife and I, Tress and I, love to talk about our relationship as one long conversation. When we first met back in college, um, for nine months, we were really close friends, and I'm serious, we never stopped talking. It was just like, saw each other, and it was like, okay, so anyway, we just kept going. And then we had about a four-year gap where we weren't hanging out or didn't really communicate, and then we, she came back to my life, and suddenly, boom, we get married pretty quickly after that, and we've just never stopped talking. We love all the conversations. We talk about anything and everything. We're hard on each other. We say the hardest things to each other. We say hurtful things to each other and work through that. We just don't stop talking. And we do it on purpose because we know every conflict we resolve and every bit of new information we give binds us together more and more and more to the point where I sit around and go like, man, if she dies, I don't know if I want to get remarried because this, it's just, I don't want to have to go through all this process again. It's that close. I know her that well, I feel like. And I know there's so many more years to come, but those of you who've been married longer than me can say, yep, it keeps going. 
And my emotions at the beginning were so passionate and so huge. I love you. I know I wrote poetry and whatever, you know. And then you're like, oh, you know, 13 years later, I don't feel those intense emotions anymore. No, they're deep emotions. They're far deeper than the surface passions. And while you may be a new Christian, you have these awesome, radical passions for God. Don't drop them. Keep living them. But no, the more you know God, the deeper your passion will get. And the thicker your emotional relationship with God will be. And when you come to church to worship God, you will read lyrics. And those lyrics suddenly will make far more sense than they ever did to you before. In fact, I think most of our complaining about worship music is because we are not understanding this. I don't really like that song. Isn't this, 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 this really repetitive? It's called a hymn. <laughs> Hymns are very repetitive in their music. But when you know the theology and you read the words, you're like, that is so deep. That's so incredible. And it leads to worship. And other things we go, that is just so emotionally stupid. <laughs> I love Jesus. I'm sorry. But if I sing passionate love songs to my wife, which occasionally I do, and I feel deeply towards my wife, how am I not supposed to feel deeply towards my God? And that maybe the emotions are not wrongly set towards God. And if they were these deep emotions and we set them towards anything else, we would call that idolatry. But that a deep set of emotions should be born out of deep knowledge of this God who has given us so much and sacrificed so greatly on our behalf that maybe when we gather together, it's not a debate about what's on the screen, but the words ignite our minds, flame our hearts. The passion of the music itself explodes into a desire to praise our Lord who gave his life for a sinner like me. That that is worship. Why song? Because song links these things together. Why sermons? Because sermon teaches us the truth. The whole set is a worship service to culminate a week where everything is worship save sin and sets us to another week of great worship. Worship in spirit, worship in truth, and let it bring deep, deep understanding, deep deep emotion and great good action in your life. All of us can worship. See, God is seeking worshipers like this to quench our thirst. When you know God has sacrificed a great amount for you, you have a deep value. It's called his son on the cross. God himself sacrificing for you. When you see that great sacrifice give forth to a great gratitude, it makes you his child, and suddenly you realize, I have an identity. I am a son or a daughter of God, and my thirst is quenched. And when I set forth to get involved with the good things that God has set forth, and everything becomes worship, I have a great meaning to glorify the great God in heaven and to enjoy him forever. God has satisfied all of our thirsts, and that satisfaction is called worship. It is a great, great thing that we have in our God. Amen? And maybe we just need to contemplate with gratitude a little longer our Lord. And realize he sought us out. 
why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Maybe because God told him he had an encounter with a woman at a well and he was seeking some worshipers. Why did he meet you where you were? Why may he be meeting you today? Let's bow our heads. Father, we are blown away by what you give and what we receive. May it inflame us to worship you and may it challenge us to know you more. And may we allow that then to act in our lives and worship and in our song and our, and our hearing and our prayers and our time together that you would be glorified in all that we do. Thank you, thank you, God, for such a great sacrifice that we could live in such great gratitude. It's in your name that we pray.